So here's some exciting news from On Being Studios. We have just released a beautiful new podcast, Poetry Unbound. It's hosted by Padraig Otuma, the wise Irish poet and theologian you may have heard me interview before. Each episode is a short yet unhurried, contemplative yet energizing immersion in a single poem. The first season features poems by Joy Harjo, Tracy K. Smith, Ross Gay, Emily Dickinson, and many more. I'm making Poetry Unbound a ritual for my days. And you can subscribe to Poetry Unbound wherever you find your podcasts. And please join me in sharing this news far and wide. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Ezra Klein's podcast is one of the few places I've been finding the political searching I've been looking for personally as a journalist and citizen. I've admired his willingness to stretch thoughtfully out of his comfort zone with a real desire to understand aspects of American life very different from his own. So I took this opportunity to interview him for my show and have more of the fearless conversation I've been wanting to hear all around about how this political moment goes deeper than now. And instead of asking how our current tumult happened to us, can we ask how we walked into it, Democrat and Republican alike, so we can walk out of it? Before he founded Vox Media, Ezra created the Wonk blog at the Washington Post. But even at his most wonky, a deep strain of humanism runs through his journalism. And that infuses his new book, Why We're Polarized, and where he was willing to go with me in this conversation. As I traveled through politics in this era, as I started a media organization, as I wrote my articles and talked to people and went on cable news and did all the things that a political pundit or media person is supposed to do, I just would have this nagging feeling sometimes that I felt I was trying to do things well, not just good, but well, or maybe not just well, but good, something like that. And that I was being caught and the people around me were being caught in this vise of like political decision making that was making everybody worse than who I knew them to be or who I knew myself to be at times. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. Ezra Klein is now editor-at-large of Vox Media. His podcast is The Ezra Klein Show. And in 2018, he moved from Washington, D.C. back to his home state of California. Your father was Brazilian. Was was he uh, first generation, second generation, or had he been here? First generation. So he immigrated to America in the 70s. Okay. And then you grew up in Los Angeles. Is that right? Uh, outside Los Angeles. I grew up in Irvine, California. Okay. I've never heard you speak about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood, and so I'm very curious uh, how you'd start to think about that or talk about it. So I grew up Jewish. I am Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my father is deeply culturally Jewish, but is not a believer. And my mother is a seeker. Okay. And I sometimes tell the joke that, so I'm always looking for something to not believe in. (laughs) I'm always sort of like, I want to find something, but I never quite can find something to fasten onto. But I grew up in a household that, uh, you know, we went to temple and I went to Hebrew school, both in a sort of afternoon way for some number of years, um, and then for a period of time went to a Jewish day school. And so Judaism was a big part of my life growing up in many uh, kind of spiritual and and ethical ways, remains a big part of my life now. But it isn't something that um, I've always, I've always in some ways envied people who are able to hold on to a sense of belief. I I find that I have a lot of trouble with belief. I feel like that flows into, in a formative way, and in a generative way into your identity as a journalist, your work as a journalist. I mean, you know, here's a way, I think this is a sentence from the book that you've described yourself. I am a voter, a news junkie, and a liberal. I'm curious about were there roots of those identities, those aspects of your identity in that world of your childhood? I, I wonder about that myself. So my my parents were kind of softly liberal, um, I would say, uh, and I don't want to speak their politics for them. 
But the town I grew up in was conservative. Uh, in fact, it elected its first Democrat only in uh, in the House of Representatives only in 2018. Oh, really? So was it in Orange? Were you in Orange County? Or? I'm in Orange County. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And. So it wasn't that I grew up in a very liberal area, although um, certainly had liberals in it. And the thing that I thought about a lot growing up, though, was that it was very – it was intuitively obvious to me that it was almost all luck. It was deeply, deeply evident just looking around, right, knowing – you know, we would go back to Brazil to see my family there. And – Brazil is just much poorer than America. Mm-hmm. It is just much poorer than America, right? And, and Brazil is a middle-income country, right? So we're yeah. not talking about the poorest country in the world and, and, and we would be in Rio, which is a richer part of Brazil. And it was just obvious that what was deciding people's life outcomes was the luck of where they were born. Hmm. And so there's a – I have my political opinions, but my political opinions, I feel more than anything else, are built atop a foundation that – when I look at my own life or when I look around me, what I see are structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see this in the, the book's analysis too. I'm very focused on what are the structures that shape people's decision making? What right. are the structures that lead us to be who we are? I think that we often have an illusion that we made a choice for ourselves when that choice was so fundamentally shaped by who we are and where we grew up and what was around us and what made sense for us to do that in some final accounting it was really almost never a choice at all. And I think when you look at the world like that, then it becomes very, very, very deeply important. It becomes of central importance that those systems are just and that in some big way, we are helping people who were born into or who fell into the wrong systems. You know, it's also been interesting to me, um, especially listening to the podcast where where you're very present as a human being and you know, one of the things you've talked about, which was a little surprising and it might be surprising to other people, is, you know, I think when you emerged onto the scene in Washington, in the Washington Post, and then later with Vox, you know, you, you felt like this quintessential inside the Beltway journalist. But in fact, that's not where you came from. You weren't great at school. Like, you didn't come – there is this kind of um, – you know, this well-worn path into that world of going to certain colleges and having certain liberal credentials and, you know, writing for the Harvard Crimson. And that's not that's not where you came from, but you you kind of you walked into this. I remember I remember being an intern at the Washington Monthly and being there late closing an issue uh, or helping to close an issue because I was an intern. It didn't fall to me. And some I don't remember why it happened, but somebody began looking at the masthead and looking at how many people on it had gone to Harvard mm-hmm. or Yale or one of the Ivies. And I went to, to UC Santa Cruz and then UCLA. And I just – I hadn't understood until then how small that world was. Yeah. How much people had grown up with a new republic in their homes. And the point is not to make me into some kind of populist um, folk hero, right? That's not – my my father's a a university mathematician. Mm -hmm. But for me, the most present fact about my life is that for me inside, right, when I'm inside the spaceship, it seems really easy that it could have failed. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been about half of my life when I've been more or less succeeding and about half of it when I was at least by a lot of measures failing. I graduated from high school with a a 2.2. I got into school because I did well in the SATs. And just it's really clear to me that if I had just ended up on a slightly different path, Mm -hmm. that things wouldn't go well, that that I could be the exact person I am. And if you just put me in the wrong situation – it's not like I have an indomitable will to succeed. Okay. If you don't put me in something where <laughs> yeah. it fits who I am and what I do and what I love and, and what I'm able to obsessively focus on versus not be able to focus on at all, I can just fall apart pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And so that's another part of my just, I think, skepticism of how much individuals deserve credit for their success and deserve the desserts of that success because – you know, certainly for me, and I've been lucky over time to be successful, but for me, it feels much more like what happened is I lucked into, for a lot of reasons, a thing that fit me as opposed to, you know, like I reshaped the world to fit my interests. You know, I feel like you make a move in the book, which is really similar to what you have did with Vox and do on Vox and with Creating Vox, which is lay, trying to lay out the, and examine the broad and deep context behind the news, which also takes in the historical arc of time and not just, you know, what we call real time now. Um, you know, I remember being um, right after the 2016 election in this room full of, 
you know, academics, very smart people, but academics who are mostly coastal, mostly white, and actually also mostly male. And there was this deep assumption in the room that our democracy had been working so well, right? That we had actually arrived at this great thing, and now it was being undermined. And I think, you know, a big point that is is true in your book is, first of all, that we that we walk around these days with a false and often romanticized or idealized version of our past, of how well democracy has worked across time. But also that depending on where you sat in this society, even in what we would now maybe look back at as the glory days of the you know late 20th century, that depending on where you sat, especially if you were not white, um, our democracy has been very fragile in places for a long time. I would even go further. I don't think it's been a democracy for most of American history. Mm. You know, when people think about what is what is a time period of American democratic, small-d democratic greatness, they tend to think of the post-war 20th century. Yeah. And for a lot of that post-war 20th century, what you had was um, what Ian Haney Lopez, who's a, a professor at UC Berkeley, calls a, a Heronvolk liberal democracy, yeah, which is to right. say a, a liberal democracy for white people. We forget how much fighting there has actually been, how much violence there has actually been, how yeah. many people have paid, how many people do not get paid back for what they sacrificed for justice. And I think in doing that, we blind ourselves to not just the reality of our history, but because our present is an accumulated path of that history – the reality of our present too. We we fool ourselves into believing we are living through some aberration or divergence. Right. When in many ways it's what came directly before that was the aberration and divergence. Yeah. You know, I grew up in I don't know if you know this, but I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. And uh when I grew up there in the nineteen sixties, I didn't know any Republicans, right? Everybody was a Democrat. And just like, you know, you point out that I mean, there's so many things that, like, that, that the GOP and the conservative movement had not merged as they merge in our imaginations now. The Democratic Party was not the party of civil rights up until a certain point. That Abraham Lincoln was the first Republican president, right? Like we, and we're, and the, so that's the the long road that brought us to now. And I mean, you're you're younger than I am too. I mean, did did you know all of this history as you got into this? Did this fill out your picture of where we came from, how we walked into this? Yeah, it filled out a lot of it. But mm-hmm. just while you were saying, one of the things I came across while while doing the book that I just found so shocking, um, and, and this just speaks to my own lack of historical knowledge, but Civil Rights Act of 1965, which of course was signed into law by Lyndon Johnson, yeah. a higher proportion of Republicans in both the House and Senate voted for that act than Democrats did. Yeah, right. And I, I think there are two things worth noting about that. One is just first, given how the parties have changed since then, where the Republican Party has become um, very responsive to white identity politics and the, the Democratic Party has become very self-intentionally um, multiracial. That's just a very different division than we have today. But the other, and this is just striking to me, is number one, Isn't it amazing that you could have something as polarizing as a Civil Rights Act, which is one of the most polarizing pieces of legislation we have ever passed in this country, and it wouldn't break down on party lines? Like, can you imagine anything that would be so central to American politics now that would not be on party lines? So just the way American politics worked in the mid-20th century, it is so different. Because we've kept the same names for institutions, there's still a Congress, a Democratic Party, a Republican Party. It creates this illusion of stability. But actually, things really have changed. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with journalist Ezra Klein. You say that the master story here is the logic of polarization, which creates this massive feedback loop that just keeps making the polarization deeper. But I think what I find so helpful to to frame this way is that, as you say, it's not that American politics was not riven by deep and even violent disagreements previously, but these fights did not map onto party the way they do now. That that's really the thing that's new. 
Yeah, this is the central story of American politics in this age. And and it's a strange it's a stranger story than I think we give it credit for. It's really true. If you look back to mid-20th century America, what we were fighting over and the range in which we were fighting is so much wider than it was now. There was so much more political violence. We had urban riots. We had assassinations. Um, the kinds of legislation that was being debated and not just debated but actually passed. I mean we just mentioned the Civil Rights Act. But you could mention I mean Medicaid and the entirety of the Great Society. Uh, the, there was so much happening. The 1965 Immigration Act. The, the 1965 Immigration Act, yeah, the Voting was, Rights Act. Yeah. These are transformative pieces of yeah. legislation. So with the Vietnam War, right, yeah. we – like National Guard killed a protester at Kent State, yeah. the, um, the occupation of Alcatraz by indigenous Americans. The, there was so much happening, the feminist revolution in that period. I mean it's such a big period in American life. But one of the things that is going on in it is that as political as it all is and it is political – it is not sorted by party. Yeah. Compared to where we were 50 years ago, it isn't just that Republican means conservative and Democratic means liberal um, in a way where that wasn't true. You used to have liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. But it's also the case that we sort by geography. We didn't. It didn't used to tell you a lot to know, did somebody live in a dense city or not? Um, that wasn't very heavily related to whether you were a Republican or a Democrat. Now it is. Religiosity was not very different by party. But now the biggest religious group in the Democratic Party are the religiously unaffiliated, whereas the Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. Yeah. The parties are not that different racially. The parties weren't that sorted psychologically, but now they are. Um, and this just goes all the way down the line. It just becomes so heavy. Mm-hmm. That you become rationally more afraid of, upset at, angry at, in opposition to the other side because they really are more different and more threatening to you. And so it's really that that mixture of not just having these divisions but sorting them all across the same cleavage over a course of decades. But we're now at a – I don't want to call it a terminal point. It can keep happening. But we're at a pretty advanced point in it. I think more than anything else, that is why politics feels so different to people now. When people say, oh, it just feels so bitter and divisive. Right. They're not wrong. Um, it's not that we are more divided than we ever have been. It's that all the divisions are stacked on top of each other in a way they haven't been previously. Yeah. You know, something I've thought about so much in these years, something I believe is that even if we did not have what feels like, you know, political disarray, we were going to have to completely reinvent what common life means and how it works in this century because of the breakdown of that homogeneity, because of how technology is changing fundamental aspects of, you know, how we how we structure our days and how we learn and lead. And, you know, and, and we are this, you know, as you say, the, this great sorting. But so as you say, it's not just limited to politics. It's also about race and religion, geography, and how those play into politics. But I also think you have a sentence in the book, which I think is so important. Change of this magnitude acts on us psychologically and not just electorally. The truth is there's so many ways that that aren't about politics, that are just about the air we breathe. And again, like who, how we define our identity and the fact that we're the generation that's redefining marriage and community and gender. Um, this human ground beneath our feet shifting and not to mention the economic ground beneath our feet shifting um, that makes this such an unsettled time. And sometimes I wonder, sometimes what I feel is that politics has become the thinnest of veneers over this. Mm-hmm. This human condition in a moment like this. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, how do I want to say this? When I began as a journalist, I had this very maybe naive approach that I thought, well, you know, I'll look at something like healthcare and I'll talk to the experts and try to understand the issue as best as I can and give people good information and give them a clear sense of what's happening and how it's working. And and then, you know, we can all, in the light of that sort of rational discussion, make some better decisions. And particularly over the past, you know, five or six years, I just, the unbelievable inadequacy of that approach just became clearer and clearer and clearer. Mm. 
And it's not that there's never a moment for like a recent discussion about uh, policy in America because there is and there are people who listen and it can be really important and it's very important at the moments when a political party has the power to do something and they want to do something well. So I don't want to dismiss policy work, which is you know my um, roots. Yeah. But something that I will say on the more human level that, that you're talking about here is that as I traveled through politics in this era, as I started a media organization, as I wrote my articles and talked to people and went on cable news and did all the things that a political pundit or media person is supposed to do, I just would have this nagging feeling sometimes that I felt I was trying to do things well, not just good but well or maybe not just well but good, something mm-hmm. like that, and that I was being caught and the people around me were being caught in this vise of like political decision making that was making everybody worse than who I knew them to be or who I knew myself to be at mm-hmm. times. And it's not even that I think I uh, – like I, I don't feel like this is some mea culpa. Like I, I try. you know, I, I try to be conscious of it. But one of the really radicalizing things for me in the past couple of years has been this question and it came a lot from my political reporting and talking to members of Congress and watching other journalists and, and starting Vox of just have we built a system that has structured itself such that it is – at the very least, very hard for people to express the best versions of themselves within it. Hmm. And I think we have. I have this. I, I talk about this interview I did with um, President Obama in the book. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him about polarization. And, and he's somebody I, I interviewed him many times. And I have great admiration for him. Um, and he's somebody who I think in a very deep way believed that America could overcome its polarization, believed that a lot of that polarization was illusory. Um, and, and I asked him about it because at that point in 2015 when we had this discussion, he was quite polarizing. And I asked him about this and he said, well, look, we all know that we're one way in politics. But then when we're on the, the soccer, the little league field together or at the PTA meeting or we're talking to our neighbors or there's been a storm, we're, we're very different than that. Um, and so, yeah, then maybe when you talk to that person about politics, you can't believe what they're saying. But then you look beyond that and, and they're good people. This country is full of good people. You have a relationship people. with them. Yeah, yeah. It, but not just that. I think what he was arguing was that the, the 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 versions of ourselves that politics brings out felt to him sort of wrong. Yeah. Right? And that's yeah. what that famous 2004 DNC speech is. Like we're not yeah. red and blue. Yeah. And the the difficult thing for me is that this question of well, what is the true version of ourself and is there even a true version of ourself? Because that version of ourself, that political version, as you say, it's getting bigger. It's absorbing more things. It's becoming more constant. It's becoming more suffused in our culture. And so like his optimism came from believing that these other versions of ourselves, the PTA version, that was sort of like a, a, more, a more core truth. And so that question of how politics became a kind of toxic environment – um, and how to at least see it when it is doing that to us, that to me is the really important human question in the book and the one that is the most radicalizing question for me to struggle with myself. I've thought a lot these years about how the Obama presidency, I mean, for all of us who were there, you know, that that election night, what, what's actually really hard even to cast your imagination back to at this point is how... I do think, at least for for a minute, for for a window of time, um, there there was an awareness across the political spectrum of you know that something extraordinary had been accomplished, and that that this had this meaning, which which was about what America wants to be and has aspired to be. But but what that presidency also did at a human level is it also surfaced all the unfinished business we had to do as a culture to be worthy of that accomplishment. And the truth was, for all the talk of a post-racial society, for example, we weren't there. But it, it unleashed that work, in my mind. What you're describing about how at the very same time that that happened, our structures have made us more... Uh, polarized and kind of lock us into polarization, that's, that is really stunning for me to think about um, the convergence of those two things. Because it's hard to, the work is evident out on the surface um, and it feels harder to do it than ever before. I think that's right. I, I can't believe I'm about to give the answer I'm going to give you, but this is the only podcast where I can do it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. Okay. Uh, 
In the past couple of years, um, and it's actually at the recommendation of Varshini Prakash, who is the executive director of the Sunrise Movement, the climate change movement, um, I had a conversation with her on my show and asked her, what does she do when she thinks about failure? And she said that every day she reads some of the the Tao, the Tao Te Ching. Hmm. And I thought, that's a strange answer. Um, And so I I went and I had not read it since I was young um, when I didn't get anything out of it. And sorry, this is a looping, but I promise you. (laughs) No, no, Uh, take as long as you need. And this time when I read it, I was really, really deeply struck by its ideas of non-dualism, um, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of challenged to think about everything is also encoding its opposite. Uh, and right. so much of how we are taught to think, I just think in general, but very much in politics, is things are one way. They are right or they are wrong. Yeah. Right. We got it right or we got it wrong. This person won and this person lost. Yeah. Right. That they're like it's like a clean equation that has one answer every single time. And the deep truth about the Obama presidency is that the Trump presidency was within it. Yes. That yes. there is no Trump without Barack Obama. Yeah. That they like he is in a weird way that like the, the yin to Obama's yang or vice versa mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. That you these things create their own counter reactions. Having elected Obama is very much why we then elected Trump. And by the way, the story does not end with Donald Trump. No. Right. Even right now. And we'll see what happens in, in, in the election. I'm not here to predict that. But there's been a very sharp liberalization of attitudes towards immigrants under Donald Trump. There's mm-hmm. been a very, very big change in, Democrat, in the Democratic Party's view towards immigrants. I mean, if you go look at Bill Clinton's platform mm-hmm. uh, on immigration, it reads like Donald Trump today. Um, the Democratic Party has changed dramatically in part for reasons preceding Donald Trump, but in part for reasons that reflect him too. So there's this very deep way in which everything here is uh, is deeply entwined with itself. And the moments when people think they have most won are almost certainly the moments that um, are going to be remembered as the folly a couple of years later when they think, yeah. you know, Democrats talking the Obama era about their rising demographic tide and not recognizing that it was exactly the fear of that rising demographic tide that was going to change white voting patterns and lead to, some, lead to an outcome they never could have predicted, that we've got to be able to see um, these things as somehow – it's never going to be all one way and it doesn't – hopefully it doesn't end. And that's a very – it is a very – for me certainly a very hard way to train yourself to look at politics or just to look at life. This conversation with Ezra Klein ran for two hours. The full, unedited version of this one is worth a listen, and we always post those in our podcast feed. There's more of a surprising dive into the history of American politics and the current politics of journalism. Find that along with all of our conversations on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with journalist Ezra Klein. Though only in his mid-30s, he's been a prominent political analyst for a decade, first as creator of the Wonk blog at The Washington Post, then as co-founder of Vox Media and a podcaster. His new book, Why We're Polarized, takes a deeply researched and historical, yet also personally searching and surprising look at how this political moment goes deeper than now. I think that taking a long view of time, which you do, which, you know, we have to remind ourselves that a long view of time is how time works. And it's just, it's un-American to think that way. And it's not instinctive. And in fact, you know, the digital world and journalism, the way it works now, and news, the way we're training us to not 
to not realize that reality. Um, seeing this historical moment, as you said, with some expansiveness and some reality about it means that, yeah, as you say, nothing stops here, but it's not necessarily all going to transform because there's another election in 2020. And that doesn't mean it's not going to, I mean, it is going to transform. That is the only constant, right? I mean, you're the way you lay out, like where we've been in the last 50 years, 60 years, it, it's all change. I love your insight there that it's un-American to think about time yeah. as long. It's very deeply true. I, I struggle with this so much. I find myself often caught between my instincts kind of as somebody who does big picture analysis of American politics, and that's to take these like very zoomed out views. And then the the constant urgent recognition that a lot of people don't get the luxury of that view. The stakes are life and death. People yeah. will die if they don't get health insurance. They'll be deported. They, they, right. They'll be separated from their children. And so there's this way in which these two things, like it's they're both it, true. It's maddening yeah. to be held yeah. between them because yeah. on the one hand, you want to say like you have to take a step back and see this for what it is. And and, and, and this is the thing, though, that I, I do think is very important. And, and I'm in the media and there's a big part of the book that's very – I would call it media critical. But on the other hand, I'm just trying to describe what I think is true mm-hmm. um, and it's something for all of us in the media to struggle with, which is there's a real uh, way in which – the business models, the technological underpinnings of how we get our particularly political information have oriented towards outrage and urgency. Yeah. So I think that there's a deep way in which we are manipulated into a constant state of feeling a constant state of emergency. And it would be one thing if that was a productive emotion. But what I think it leads to is a constant state of either exhaustion or hypervigilance, yeah. both of which can be bad in their own ways. And I was yeah. not to say a lot of people are within that and doing great work and organizing and, and, and trying. But, you know, something that I really do urge people to think about is, you know, is their informational diet a good one? Um, and particularly, have they gotten so caught on national politics and the outrages of national politics they've forgotten the place that they live? What were once very dominant state and local political identities, people were more involved in the place they were and the place they were was quite different. And now a lot of state and local politics is nationalized and people's politics have nationalized and the media sources we we follow are nationalized. Like, But there's something a lot more generative. You can have a lot more effect and impact on state and local politics. So as much as it's a bit against interest, I'm a national political journalist. One thing – one of the very few I think actually productive pieces of advice I have for people is to truly try to think about how can they – it's good to know about national politics. But if your diet is basically – 90, 10 national or more, maybe think about tilting that back. I remember somebody saying to me when I started my show, somebody who was questioning that it was journalism, um, saying, you know, the news is about, uh, this was a definition of news. And it was from a, a, a really eminent journalist that news is the extraordinary thing that happened today. Um, and I think like when we read that in the newspaper every morning, you could kind of put it into the context of everything else that happened during the day. But in this 24-7 news cycle, people get this constant, they get this overload, this constant diet of, you know, and generally not just extraordinary things, it's extraordinarily terrible things, um, yes. right? It's the things that are going to capture attention, which, as you said, I, mean, I think you said political media is biased not towards the left or the right, as, as much towards loud, outrageous, colorful, inspirational confrontational. And and the effect, like the impact question of journalism, the effect of all of that is to demoralize and debilitate and depress people in the same way that politics is demoralizing and, and depressing people that journalism is trying to be a constructive force in that, right? Or and, good journalism. And it's worse. And, and I think it's even worse than that mm. because the great lie of journalism is that we're a mirror held up to the world. In fact, we're an actor upon that world. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really, to me, so deeply important, right? The, during particularly the period of objective journalism, quote-unquote objective journalism, 
there was this idea that we weren't really making decisions. We were just reflecting, right? right. It's just just the facts. Yeah. Um, of course, choosing which All the stories news is, is fit a to tremendous – right. Choosing those stories is a tremendous form yeah. of um, bias and judgment and, and, and whatever you want to call it. But the key thing to me is that the more we focus, say, on confrontation, the more confrontation there actually will be. Right. The more we focus on the most polarizing stories, the more polarized the country will actually be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the audience has some re- relationship to this, right? As you say, we're we're a little bit trying to chase audience. I'm not sure I actually believe that the audience wants like the worst work. And, and I think they get much better than the worst work, I think. And I want to say like – for all that I'm trying to to examine um, both my own organization and my industry, I think that overall, like, there's a tremendous amount of wonderful work done. I just think we're in a period where we have to um, reevaluate a lot of yeah. how we cover and very specifically sort of like national confrontational politics. And and I see a real a real challenge in journalism that is a that is a human challenge is how tricky it is. To make, and I'm not just talking about you know a polit, you know a better politician or a more thoughtful politician, but just goodness, right? There, there is absolute. There's like a there's a whole alternative narrative to the story of our time, which is, which is actually people, real people in real places, kind of stitching our country back together, one relationship at a time. It's very hard to make that into a riveting story, the way it's easy to make. Something terrible, or a disaster, or or an evil person, or or you know, right into a riveting story. And this is where the economics and technology of it are so important. That when you knew that the way people were going to read your stories was they were already subscribed to your paper, yeah, and they had a ritual where they spread it out in the morning, yeah. while they drank their coffee, you had a lot more license to take risk with those stories. Because you weren't fighting. For you weren't going to lose um, them. They were already there. You weren't going to yeah. lose them. So you could take some risk or something could be a little bit boring. It was okay, right? Yeah. And now that it's very competitive, that is when we optimize in these directions. And you, you mentioned sort of the ways in which the brain is is built to respond to intense emotion. Yeah. But the other thing that's very built to respond to is identity, um, our group. Uh, you know, is our group winning or losing? Is our group being threatened or, is, or are we safe, right? That's It's incredibly deep in us, right? We are, we are social, pro-social creatures at our most fundamental level. Like we live in this moment, but our brains live in deep evolutionary time. Yeah. And they're not used to this many identities and groups and this much conflict. I mean, it's yeah. just not what they were built for. No. And so one of the things that I think is also very important is that it turns out that a really important shortcut to getting people to do anything, um, but particularly to be active in politics, to read or share a news article, to and more than both of those to operate on social media, is to activate their identities. And so something that I think is really a big question with that is are we activating good identities in people or bad identities in people? Mm-hmm. Like a huge argument of the book is that we've misunderstood the term identity politics. We apply it only to traditionally marginalized groups like, you know, so African-Americans and Black Lives Matter. Well, that's identity politics. But rural gun owners who are upset about universal background, like that's just politics. We kind of wipe out um, particularly dominant identities. And so the easiest way to get people to read political stories is to like tap on that political identity. You know, like you don't like Trump or you really love Trump and he's the greatest president ever. And I think that something that we're going to have to get better and better at is trying to call forward alternative identities because we don't just have one. You know, like you can be curious. You can be fair-minded. You can yeah. see yourself as an animal lover. I mean, there. you know, I, I find a lot of – it's one reason I push state and local politics. You can care a lot about what's happening nearby. Um, I find a lot of power and I often like really – work to front load this in my personal identity as a journalist. Sometimes when I feel the other stuff is overtaking me, I try to like pull myself back into that. Like my job is to be curious, to try to understand how things work, to try to explain them to an audience that wants to know. But one of the just like the very difficult things in all this is it's not just that we are tapping on people's emotion. We found the best way to do it is to combine it with their deeper identities. And that's that is really powerful kindling to play with. And I'm not saying that we don't and I'm not saying that I don't. I want to be real clear that this is not me saying, hey, they're all doing this but yeah. me. No, I, I think um, it's what you're saying. It's I'm built it into too. the structure. It's, it's built into the right. way it works now, um, even for individuals who might not want to be doing that. Right. And and so we're all sort of part of it and we're all mm-hmm. here together. 
But it's very hard to think about. Um, it's not impossible to imagine how we can get out. And it's not. And again, it's not to say it's worse than it's ever been. Right? We had a civil war in this country. Yeah. But it's it's bad. Um, I think these are these are very powerful dynamics. These are like feedback loops that have been set off. And if they're not actually interrupted in some way, they will just keep going. Yeah. And as you say, like this part of the poverty of our time is how the way we've been sorted, um, and this is in extremely represented in politics, has kind of made us all caricatures of ourselves, right, in public. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to that, although I always want to be careful because sometimes you can fool yourself into thinking, I don't want to say people are more reasonable than they are, mm-hmm. but that the more reasonable version they are with you is going to be the one that they act in out in the world. And, and I will often then have the experience, and I've had this as a reporter many times, I'll like sit with a Republican member of Congress and we'll have a good discussion and we'll go and vote in a way where um, I'm not shocked because I, I know how the votes are going to turn out in general, but it's very different than that. Right. Um, and so sometimes it's it's a hard thing to hold, right? It's mm-hmm. a hard thing to hold that the the face people present you with may be a true one, but then in another context, it may not be the one that drives our behavior. Or given a choice, they may choose something that you feel is so for is just much further into an extreme version than than what you had seen with them. And that's always yeah. that's always a difficult that's always a difficult thing. And and that said, I think a lot, you know, that's also a criticism I'm sure many people could make of me. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with journalist Ezra Klein. There's a a, line, a sentence, a sentence that the conversation you had with Danielle Allen meant a lot to you. Oh, that, she's so great. Yeah, and, and I, I can tell that that one was really meaningful for you, and this sentence that you quote that really jumped out at me, it's the love of democracy that has to compensate for the pain of democracy. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, um, would you describe, you, you speak also in about, you know, democratic practice. And, you know, is, what does that mean for you, love of democracy? Is that, is that appealing to you, that notion, personally? It is. Um, I have a pretty deep commitment to uh, – I'm actually trying to work on an essay about this and having trouble with it, but a, a commitment to a pretty full idea of democracy um, and, and democratic equality – which I think is sort of the more important dimension of it. Like there's a question of majority rule and I care a lot about those, but that's thin. You know, if you just create majority rule, then hopefully you get your 51 percent or more and you're able to do the thing that you think is better for the world. And that's better than the the people you don't think are better for the world doing their thing. Like I get that and I want to abolish the filibuster and all of it. But I think that if you ask me what I really think we'll need to do, although I'm not confident we will, is it – we need to have a much richer form of democratic practice. And one of the things that is suffused in Daniel Allen's work, and there's another philosopher, um, Elizabeth Anderson, who does a lot of work on this, that we we need to we need to build a politics where one of our aims is the participation and respect we give to each other. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean a politics where the fights aren't hard fought or the stakes aren't high or everything is compromised down for no reason, but that in some kind of deep way, we need to be looking to pull people into the process mm-hmm. and and we need to be looking to pull people back from the ledge. And something that I struggle with and feel somewhat strongly about, but you know, it's a tricky thing, is that I think that there's a lot of push towards something I've come to think of as almost an anti-politics, a politics of of writing each other out, yeah. of saying that you're actually irredeemable at this point. I don't have to deal with you. Um, Arthur Brooks had a nice distinction uh, in a podcast with me where he talked about the difference between anger and contempt. Yeah. Anger is a, a is an emotion that maybe can bring us closer together. When I'm angry at you, what I want to do is like is solve the problem. Contempt is I don't even need to deal with you anymore. I'm just writing you off. I can't yeah. even. And I think a lot of online politics um, pushes towards the politics of contempt 
and pushes towards a sort of anti-politics, which would be fine maybe if it worked, um, right? I, I can be enough ends justify the means that if that's how you could pass universal health care, great. But because I'm pretty uh, pessimistic about that anti-politics working because I'm very pessimistic that the kinds of disagreements we've had in this country, the polarization we have in this country, the um, divides we have in this country are illusory or just going to go away. Mm. Well, then, if you can't find a way to pull people into your side, if you can't find a way to at least make them feel unafraid of you holding power, then you're in a tough spot. I mean, maybe demographics will do the work for you over time. I think that's possible. But in the meantime, it's pretty hard. And so I'm pretty committed personally to uh, like a like a form of small-D democratic politics where one of the things you are trying to do is have disagreements where the losers can still feel respected. Yeah, doesn't Danielle Ellen, Ellen talk about political friendship, that notion of... Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, and I think, um, you know, as you... One of the things you describe as part of a, a factor in this polarization is that the people who get the attention are... Perhaps people who are quite happy for contempt to be the mode, but even as you say, even as I feel like that 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 certainly has become more real and certainly more formative, forceful. I think there's this counter movement again, not in places that get publicized, and it, it's not even necessarily a big political change of heart. It's just people don't want to live this way. Right, people are exhausted, and and also I, I think this kind of moves into the question I want to ask you as we close. I think people are also thinking. So many of us, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, are parents, and and we are thinking about the world our children will inherit. And you have become a parent in this tumultuous, tender moment in American life, and I I'm just curious about how that is flowing into. You know, this thinking that you do and this reflecting on um, politics and and our country. It's it's very deeply grounding. Um, and in many ways, it intensifies some things. I don't want to say like, well, now that I've become a parent, I know I was more right than ever. <laughs> but certainly something that I feel very deeply being a parent is, God, does it strike you in the face with how unfair things are. Mm-hmm. Um, both, um, you know, just in the lottery of birth itself, right? Did you were you born healthy? Were you born to uh, a family that could care for you? Were you born to a family that had resources to care for you, that had time to be with you? Yeah. I know what I ca- what I have the ability to, to to give and do for and with my son, and it breaks my heart that not everybody, like not every parent, is able to have say even the flexibility in their time to to be there for, you know, when they go to sleep and. So one thing it just does is I think it really strikes you in the face with the reality and the unfairness of inequality, um, what you are asking people to make up for on the back end. So that's a way in which I think it has – I trend towards a pretty egalitarian um, politics and it's pushed that a lot further. The other part of it is just – and this is softer maybe but my son seems to me so good. Um, just when I look at him and when I look at the natural way he engages with the world. And somewhere along the line, most of us lose a lot of that. And there are, I'm sure, a lot of different reasons and evolutionary things. And, you know, you don't want people to just smile, literally everybody. But there's something <laughs> right. about yeah. thinking about where where is that getting lost? Yeah. Um, and also, how do I react to him that makes that possible and, and such I don't react that way to other people. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about how when he's upset and being kind of what one might call a jerk and I'm very tired today and he was up in the middle of the night and, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing. You know, my question said is not, well, first of all, how dare you? Don't you know what I'm going through? <laughs> um, it's, oh, are you hungry? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Is something bothering you? Is it cold in here? Yeah. Like, is something wrong? Is there a zipper? You know, you go through this whole thing. Like, there's, like something must be wrong for you to be acting this way. Maybe I can help you find what it is. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as we get the ability to speak, it's like somebody wrongs us. And it's like, how dare you? Let me tell you why. Right. And I am not saying that it is occasion to some capacity for me to be a like a, like a bodhisattva in my <laughs> um, interactions with other people, including people I love. 
Um, you know, I was tired today and I spoke sharply to somebody I love because of it. Uh, at, but it's it's at least given me something kind of deep to reflect on. I don't know if that's really a political question, but I think in some of these questions of how do we understand other people's politics, given that – given how – much more similar, I think, we are to kids than to the sort of rational super agents of you know economic models that we, or in some and that we pretend philosophical to be, yeah. models. Yeah, that I think there's some there's some relevance of that to politics to recognizing that people's politics may not be as much a choice for them as we often think they are. Ezra Klein is the co-founder and editor-at-large of Vox Media and a host of two podcasts, The Weeds and The Ezra Klein Show. His book is Why We're Polarized. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Marie Sambilay, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, Colleen Sheck, Christiane Wartell, and Julie Seipel. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.